Bullshit. Pretend for a moment we've entered a parallel universe, free of bullshit and full of bold solutions. That's what the No Bullshit Marketing Show is all about. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich. Our guest today is Bob Haddad. But first, let's cut the bullshit. Buzzwords drive me crazy for a number of reasons. In fact, previous rants have been about the overuse of acronyms and so forth. It seems like some people love to throw out phrases and acronyms instead of speaking with clarity. Plus, the phrase of the day, month, or year often means something different to each person or market segment because since it's a new phrase, the definition hasn't been clearly conveyed to the masses. One such phrase that Bob, our guest, will talk about, I'm sure, with his background at Salesforce.com is uh, a phrase that became more and more prevalent in the past year, social selling. I've read and heard phrases like, all selling is social, and how important it is to have a social selling mindset. But like the name podcast, which sucks, social selling is a bit of a misnomer. I always talk about the name podcast because as soon as you say that, people that haven't listened go, what is that? And that's because it was named way back when they were on the iPod. Uh, so it's really audio on demand, radio on demand, but it's a misnomer. Well, social social selling, in my opinion, is a bit of a misnomer too because social selling actually isn't really social or selling. It's not about closing the deal or about doing more online than offline. Social selling is about providing your prospects and customers value through online social media communication and then taking the conversation offline to create real connections, real relationships. LinkedIn offers what they call the four pillars of social selling, and they start off with, number one, create a strong professional brand to increase your visibility to your desired contacts and build trust in your industry. Their second point is don't just blanket the world with your pitch. We always talk about hitting the bullseye with your message, your target market. And so instead, focus on the best prospects for your industry and your goals. And number three, establish yourself as a subject matter expert or thought leader. And that's what Bob is, and that's what I'm hoping to be perceived as as well, is a thought leader showing that we're an informer, not a me-former. An informer, not a me-former. It's not about you it's about them. Regularly share interesting industry content. Engage with stories shared in your field and limit how much you promote yourself over others. Number four, start with genuine conversation. If your prospects feel like they're immediately being sold to, they'll be less likely to want to build a relationship with you. Remember, the selling comes after the social in social selling. Social selling is all about connections and content or you could say it's about no bullshit marketing. The No Bullshit Marketing Show is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash no BS. Try a book like Modern Romance, an investigation from the hilarious Aziz Ansari. You can download it for free today. Go to audibletrial.com slash no BS. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash no BS for your free audiobook, over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Our guest today is Bob Adad, Senior Strategic Account Manager at Salesforce.com. Bob has spent his career bringing strategic technology solutions to sales teams and organizations throughout the world. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having uh, for coming aboard 
And uh, we want to start off by having you walk us through your career background, your educational background, your journey. Sure. Glad to. Uh, I was born uh, north side and uh, moved to Bellevue as a young kid, which had a profound and lasting um, impact on my life. Uh, very much blue-collar family. Um, I have uh, an, four brothers and a sister, and that's relevant because four of the brothers went to IUP. Um, I have uh, two older brothers that went there, myself and one younger brother, and then I have a, a laggard of a brother that went to Slippery Rock, um, and a sister went to La Roche. Boy, yeah, that Slippery Rock school. brother, he's an outcast. He is. He is. We still love him, though. <laughs> uh, really, my, you know, I... My, my career has uh, been very fortunate for me. Um, you know, when I got out of school, I actually didn't have a job. I wasn't focused on the right things, um, looking for a job, and actually shoveled as- asphalt for six months. At a time, uh, at the love of my life, who um, I've been married to for over 30 years, and uh, the irony was she was a very successful nurse, working in a very professional environment, um, and I was shoveling asphalt. But my first job was actually a, kind of an interesting crossroads. I, I was offered two jobs at the same time. The one was with a food service company and um, included a car, included a base of 30 in 1983. It wasn't bad at all. Uh, the other one was selling this thing called a computer in 1983, uh, very new to the market at a company called Radio Shack, which was very humbling um, just from the name because no one associated Radio Shack with technology, although the technology was very good. Um, you know, at that crossroad, the one question I did ask the food service company was, where can I be in five years, right? I had great aspirations. And the answer was, you'll probably make about 35 and you'll have a car. So I took the job at Radio Shack making approximately $800 a month uh, with commission opportunities of about another 400 And there were many people that thought that was really a stupid thing to do. But the technology piece just kind of grabbed me. So um, anyway, I was at Radio Shack for nine months and got a call from a college buddy of mine who was actually going to work with two other college buddies selling phone systems. And um, the irony of that was it was right when AT&T separated. You can now sell phone systems. So I did that for nine months. And the irony to me in part is that um, I probably sent out out 200 resumes to get my first job and haven't had to put together a resume since because once you prove your success, people really are very much interested in you. Um, from there, I had a college buddy, fraternity brother, who worked at Xerox, two of them actually. And and I'm a firm believer in preparation plus opportunity equals success, so I'm just going to share a quick story. Um, I actually went down to Charleston, West Virginia with the one fraternity brother um, they want to interview someone they thought was like him. They really liked him, and that was for a copier position. But on the way home, I, I knew I was going to become engaged or at least ask and decided to contact the Pittsburgh Xerox office. And they had this position called a communication marketing executive, which my mother thought was the greatest in the world. She was very proud of me for the title. But it basically was selling two technologies that you might scratch your head over today. One was this thing called a facsimile, and the other, believe it or not, was voicemail. Um, this was a new market that Xerox was in. And when I talk about pressure, preparation plus opportunity equals success, I had another college buddy, fraternity brother, that worked for Xerox in Philly. And I called him and I said, hey, Bruce, what, what is this? Right? And I'm trying to get my arms around. He goes, I'll send you the manual. So I, I read key functional functionality of how to use the system. And I went in in the final interview and the 
guy in the corner office said, can you step out? I have to make a phone call. And I stepped outside and all the secretaries at the time and all the managers were trying to do something on a phone. And I just said, well, what are you trying to do? And they said, well, we got this new damn system. We don't know how to use it. And I said, what are you trying to do? And they said, we're trying to delete a message. And I said, just hit that button. And they looked at me and said, how do you know that? And I said, I'm interviewing for the job. And I got hired right there. And that was really the beginning of my career. I mean, that's really when I started to feel like I'm making a, a major contribution. Because my first two jobs were nine months, months each. And I was scratching my head. I was trying to find my way. But really what I hit upon in, in that company was four key mentors that just, you know, everyone in my group was 15 to 20 years older than me. And they viewed me as not quite a son, but a little brother. And they really took me under their wing. And through that, I really learned a tremendous amount in a fairly short amount of time. Um, that was really what I see as my learning ground. That's where I really got going. Talk uh, about those mentors. Um, they they were just um, – they, they showed me how to enjoy having a job. I mean, there was there complaining at times, sure. But these guys had fun with the job, stared down the face of diversity. They were really focused on the customer, and that's very important. And, and I tell people, everyone's a salesperson. Everyone. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're a CIO. I don't care if you carry a quota. I don't care if you're a nurse, right? Um, you know, when a patient leaves the hospital – that opinion they had of how you treated them, both how you, the treatment, but how you also personally treated them, is a contributing factor to if they're ever going to use your services again if they need them. So they really taught me how to focus on the customer. They've really taught me how to ask the hard questions. Um, I always felt that I was a person of integrity, but I really learned from them that you need to put the bad news on the table as well. Right. And and by doing that, you learn very quickly that your customers appreciate that. And one of the things that I really um, talk to my team about, right, we, we pursue some very large sales opportunity, seven figures, eight figures. And what I tell everyone is that it's really important that since most of you have done the jobs of our customers in the past before you came to be at Oracle or Salesforce, Oracle is my prior company. It's really important that you not make any recommendations to me or them that you wouldn't make if you were still sitting in their chair, right? Because you've got to look out what's for your best interest of your customer to make them successful if you're going to be successful. Does that mean you're going to give it away? No, right? But you try to bring the value and build the value and the relationship and the trusted advisor relationship by, by you know, having the right discussions with your customers. Mm-hmm. So you were fortunate to have a number of uh, mentors that taught you a lot about what you just described as far as understanding the work situation, enjoying it, and making the most out of it. And I love your preparation plus opportunity equals success. What happened later in your career after that? You had the two nine-month jobs, and you had the, the big job. Then what happened after that? Um, well, I was at Xerox for uh, eight and a half years in the printing system division. Um, I was hired to be um, on the fax voicemail. And then uh, really just four months in, they asked me to move the printing division, and, and that was fantastic for me. Um, I end up, ended up when my mentors took a, um, a job two-year stint in, in our Virginia office, Leesburg, where we have a tremendous – or we had a tremendous training facility. He went down and did training for two years. Um, but at that point, as, as a sub-30-year-old guy, uh, for Xerox, I was managing all their major accounts in Pittsburgh. 
um, and had a lot of responsibility with that and continued to do that. And then um, a couple of gentlemen who had worked at Xerox with me who went to a company called Legion, which was Pittsburgh-based, um, recruited me. And I went over and worked there for about five or six years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, reputation is important. And this isn't meant to sound egotistical, but probably the most defining career move for me, the one that had the most impact on me, I think, in the end, personally, certainly financially, professionally, was the move to Oracle. And and I made that move based on a, a, a cooperative, what would they use, use the term? Cooperation. Um, a gentleman was in cooperation with me, right? We cooperated on some opportunities, competing on others, called me and said, I went over to Oracle. I described what I needed to three people in Pittsburgh and two of them named you by name. And I went over there and um, I had a 16-year career at Oracle on the ERP side and also running. Um, we had a major account in Pittsburgh, uh, Alcoa. Um, which invested very heavily in Oracle on the ERP side. And I was actually their you know, different titles, but basically was their, in their terminology, single point of accountability. So I was the guy from Oracle that they came to when they needed anything. And my job was to either solve the problem or find the right people to advance the ball. And then from there, I went over to Salesforce. I, um, I had developed a relationship uh, you know, I'm a firm believer, better off being lucky than good, but the harder you work, luckier you get. I developed a, a relationship with a gentleman who was an executive sponsor who ended up doing very well at Xerox and is now vice chair at Salesforce. And um, I ended up going to Salesforce about a year and a half ago. Tell me a little bit about your time at Oracle and the Oracle culture. Uh, my experience with the Oracle culture is different than I think what some outsiders see. Um, I worked with some tremendous people. And um, not that most companies don't have that, but uh, we were really in, in our little microcosm, our little Oracle economy, we were really focused on customer success. And many of the um, many of the opportunities that we had, again, which were significant, when, you, when you're investing, when you're a Fortune 100, Fortune 150 company, and you're investing in ERP, which is enterprise resource planning, so it's, it's procurement, it's financials, it's HR, it's, um, you know, how do you get all the materials so that the microphones we're speaking into are built, right? You have metals, you have foam, you have probably some glass. I mean, we, we, we manage that supply chain. They're, they're very significant programs. I mean, sometimes these could be nine figures and the first digit may not be a one. But in, in our business, there was a lot of focus on um, really making those customers successful. And because we knew a couple things. One, there's a selfish motive. If they're successful, they're going to do more. I used to always say these programs never end unless they fail. Because even though you might have a scope of X, Y, and Z, the reality of it is if you're successful, you're going to go back and do A, B, and C. So um, we, we had that. You know, the company grew quite a bit in my tenure there. You know, I think when I joined, we were a $5 billion company. When I left, we were 40. When I joined, we had a few thousand employees. When I left, um, I think they're at 120,000. And the culture changes. And from the outside in, I, I, I know at times there's a view that we're all about, you know, putting our customers in a corner and taking their money. Um, but I can tell you on the ground, the team I work with, the people I worked with and the people I was surrounded by were just really great to work with and really focused on customers. Talk about the leadership at Oracle and your interaction. Um, well, you know, there are a few people that I worked with. Um, you know, Larry Elson is the face and has continued to be the face of Oracle. And 
you know, it's, it's another interesting example. I had the good fortune of being in a couple meetings with him um, where there might have been three or four of us. And, um, you know, when, when you're in that kind of venue, um, you know, he was just phenomenal, um, just laid back. You know, quick story, I had ACL surgery, was meeting with him and a CEO of another one of my companies, my customers. And I walked in with a cane. And, of course, we had all these conversations. I had that surgery and you know, that type of thing. And at one point I started the talk and Larry reached over, put his hand on my shoulder and said, could I interrupt for one second? This is the CEO of Oracle, who's worth billions of dollars. And it was just, you know, it really kind of showed the inside of him. Now, I've also been there when he's been on stage and has, you know, said some things that might have made me curl a little bit and made the the optics from the outside in look like, um, uh, you know, pretty bad, frankly. Um, Safracast um, is one of the best business people I've ever dealt with. Um, and, and I know she's on President-elect Trump's advisory board. And and uh, there's a gentleman in Pittsburgh by the name of Bob Evans who is very – I don't know if you know Bob. But anyway, he, he did a lot of work for Oracle, and he and I connected recently. He just left Oracle. Um, but he feels really good about the fact that Safra is on that, that team. And then the other person is uh, that I worked with very co- closely was Keith Block, who is now vice chair at – and COO at Salesforce. And again, you know, that's the better luck of being good in the early 2000s. I needed a, um, I needed an executive sponsor and he was pretty senior at the time and he's a CMU alum and I asked him to get involved and he did. And then he, his career took off, not because of that, but I mean, Keith left Oracle at a very high position. Um, so I had a, a lot of opportunity to work with him on a very frequent basis. And, um, you know, again, the conversations were never about what are we going to sell them? The conversations were about how are we going to make them successful? So now at Salesforce, you know, my opening rant was about how people use buzzwords and don't even know what they mean. And now there's a misperception, in my opinion, of social selling. Talk a little bit about Salesforce and social selling and your thoughts. Um, one of the things that attracted me to Salesforce was they they really are focused um, on the customer and, you know, revenues are important, obviously, um, to the growth of the company. But, um, you know, and the mantra is, you know, this is the age of the customer. That's what we say. This is, you know, the cus- companies are going to be successful, including us or the companies that are successful in our customer success. Um a lot of growth, but on the social side, um, you know, we're heavily involved in that. And, you know, I was listening to what you were saying earlier. And, you know, to me, you know, social is a lot about awareness. And, you know, you can define social a lot of different ways, just like digital, right? You know, when I meet with the chief digital officer or this person who owns digital for a company, my question is, you know, I'm not trying to be ignorant here or stupid, but how do you define digital? What does it mean to you? Because, frankly, it can confuse the living daylights out of me at times when we talk digital, right? Um, you know, back 30 years ago, we were digital when we started scanning, arguably, right? Uh, we had a company that is defunct called DEC, right? Digital, elect, you know, mm-hmm. digital Equipment Corporation, mm-hmm. right, years ago. Um, but what I find fascinating about social is how it connects uh, your interest with, from my perspective, product. And one of the best examples I've seen of that, and I didn't know it was leveraging Salesforce at the time. I don't think I was with Salesforce at the time. But my youngest son, while in college, lost his phone, broke his phone. And he put out there on Twitter or or I think it was Twitter, um, lost my phone. Uh, If you need to reach, broken phone, if you need to reach me, you know, what, however he wanted to be contact. Within minutes, he had a... um, 
a hit from, um, and it's not our provider. So it wasn't Verizon, Sprint. And it said, it's not our job to, f- to have you explain how you broke your phone. It's our job to get you a new phone, right? Picked up on a couple words, URL, click the URL, and there's their, their price list, right? That, to me, that's phenomenal. To me, you know, we were looking for a uh, tabletop propane grill for our new house, for our new porch. And the next thing I knew, you know, we went online. Next thing I knew, every time I went on Facebook, there was a list, right? I mean, that kind of thing is pretty impressive to me. And I think the statistics show that by the time a customer calls you, if they call you, they're 60 to 70% through the learning process already, right? It's not the old days where, you know, I need your brochure, those days are long gone. So it's really important today socially that as a company, you know who's hitting your website and you know how much time they're spending there. And you can, when you turn that lead over to someone you want them to call, that they have the data and the information to really understand, is this a hot prospect? Is this a warm prospect? Is this a current customer? Do I have five customers that fit this profile and all five of them went and bought this product? How do you upsell? How do you cross-sell? All those kind of things. So to me, that's that's a big social element. That's Papa Dad, one of the top strategic sales minds. He's a part of Salesforce, and he's on the No Bullshit Marketing Show. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich. Bob, talk about a learning experience when maybe you were a BS employee, a tough boss, or your communication wasn't what it needed to be. Looking back, when do you think you might have been guilty of some BS? What did you learn from it that might help our listeners? Um, give me a second here. I'm sure there's a million. I just need to find one, right? Uh, you know, when it comes to mind, it goes back to a, a previous employer. Um, and I was, as I mentioned, I, I had responsibility for some accounts globally. And a few years before I left, and this had nothing to do with why I left because it was a great experience with the company, but they changed the whole program. And I didn't like it. And I wasn't alone, but I, I was very vocal about it. And and as I look back on that, and actually I was talking about this just a couple of days ago, this situation, I, I probably should have stepped back a little bit further. I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer that you really need to look at the other person's view Right. You need to when your executives make a decision. I mean, I can't pretend like I'm an exec because I'm not. But you need to step back and see why decisions are being made. What's important to the person you're sitting across from. Right. So in that situation, I I, I was pretty aggressive in my um, my feelings about the program, my refusal to participate in the program to the point that I didn't receive any commissions for quite many months because I wouldn't accept my compensation plan. And I end up not being in the program. And in retrospect, I probably should have handled it differently. I think I was still professional, but that's a case I look back and think, you know, maybe I should have been done it differently. Mm -hmm. And what would you tell someone listening how they might avoid something of that nature? I, I think going back to you, you need to think about why things are happening, not just the impact that it has on you. And and I tried to do that. I really, frankly, couldn't get my head around it. Um, so I'm not sure I was wrong. I'm not sure I was right either. But um, I, I think it's really important that you need to make sure that you're looking and understanding the other person's position and why they're doing it. There's usually reasons, right? We've all been in those situations where we had a reason we did something and others would say, that's crazy. Why'd you do that? Well, there, there's probably a reason, right? So that that would be the thing I'd really recommend. 
Yeah, I often joke that people don't wake up and say, I'm, I'm going to do something really stupid today. Yeah, that's... I'm going to be completely irrational today. It's it's a matter of we all don't understand what all of us are thinking. So. But, but I think there's a lot of us that do stupid things that we know are stupid, and we still do them. I agree with that, too. Yeah. Hear more of my interview with Bob and Dad on part two of the No Bullshit Marketing Show.